0: So for a third time today, we're going to read a few verses from the opening of Peter's second letter. Printed there on page 10 in your bulletin. His divine, God's, excuse me, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness And self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. We ask you now for the work of your Holy Spirit, our Father, as we hear these words and apply them in our lives. In Jesus' good name, amen. So I realize this is definitely not a text that you very often hear at Christmas time, but it is a reminder to us in in a very unique way what Peter's doing here. It's a reminder to us that the Christmas story that we're so familiar with has two sides. One side I hope you're very familiar with, and that is that God took our human nature. And we could talk for a very long time about humbl- how like, unbelievably mysterious and wonderful that is. God took our human nature. But there is another side to the Christmas story. And Peter brings it out here. God took our human nature so that we could share his divine nature. So that you and I, once again, as we were made to be, could be images of God. Miniatures, as Herman Bobbing says, miniatures of God in this world. And so I've tried to give you the first uh, verses three and four, kind of in pastoral English, just to kind of help us just think about what's going on here. And this is what Peter says. He says, God's power has given you everything you need to live and be like him. How? Through knowing him, the one who called you by showing you his own glorious excellence in his son. And in that display of his excellence, made awesome promises that you will share it. Because he has freed you from the ruin of a sinful world. So, even as you believe his promises, get busy adding excellence to your faith. God has given you everything you need to live and be like him. How? Through knowing him, the one who called you by showing you his own glorious excellence in his son. And in that display of his excellence, made awesome promises that you will share it because he has freed you from the ruin of a sinful world. So, even as you believe his promises... Get busy adding excellence to your faith. What does that even mean? To share God's nature, to share the divine nature, to share what Peter calls here his glory and his excellence in verse three. Well, it means adding these qualities, adding moral excellence. Add to your faith virtue or another word for that, add to your faith moral excellence. And we've seen that what that means is it's not just making a right turn here and following the right rule there, staying away from that bad thing over there. Moral excellence is, is an alignment of my whole self, my whole life. Everything in me and in my relationships being aligned toward what I am meant to be, what God made me to be. Alignment of my whole inner and outer life toward being a miniature of God's excellence. That's that's moral excellence. And we've seen that that requires knowledge. It requires furnishing your mind. You know, it takes some time to learn and to know, well what what are we meant to be exactly? What is that supposed to look like? And, and then you turn back to your life, and you're like, well, what, what then in my actual life is worthwhile in light of what I'm meant to be? That takes knowledge. And you have to add to knowledge also self-control because moral excellence isn't just a, a head trip. It involves disciplining the body, bridling the body, habituating my, my, my very bodily desires and emotions and impulses toward that that I'm meant to be. It takes training. It takes practice. This is not for wimps. Well, if you're going to do all of that, there's no surprise of something else you have to add. Add to your faith, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control. To do all that, we really need to add steadfastness, endurance. And I want to just talk for a few minutes now about the glory of steadfastness. Do you see it there in your notes? Add to your self-control steadfastness. Now, what do you think of when you think of steadfastness? I, I do want to say right up front, We probably need to dispel one false idea about steadfastness. Steadfastness, endurance, perseverance, stick-to-itiveness, if you like. This is not something that you and I call up from within ourselves as we're pursuing God's excellence. You know, I'm running to try to become what God wants me to be, and I'm just kind of like ready to pass out. And so I dig deeper, pull up my bootstraps, get steadfast. That is not what this is talking about steadfastness is not something we pull out from within ourselves. Steadfastness is something we soak in as we live with God. That is a massive difference. It's not digging in myself to find a steadfastness pod. I am soaking in steadfastness as I'm living with God. Because as I'm living with God, God's steadfastness starts to settle me down. Starts to give me some ballast and some... Some internal like center of gravity, and, and and as God's steadfastness, God's faithfulness, His endurance, long suffering, as that just kind of washes over me in life with Him, that starts to form in me. And I, d- I was thinking about it this week. You know, I don't know among all the excellences of God, and we could talk for eternity about God's excellences. Among all of them, is there any that is more precious than this? That God is steadfast. God in His very being cannot change there's no process in God there's no time in God there's no like becoming in God he is who he is from eternity to eternity that's just who he is in himself and so when God starts loving on you his love is steadfast the psalmist says the steadfast love of the Lord what it endures forever it never quits, never fails, never falls off because of who God is. He cannot change. So when he sets his love upon you, guess what? That love can't change. And what that means is that God is steadfast because of who he is, not how I'm doing. Amen? He is steadfast because his steadfastness depends on him, not on me. And you're just living with that every day. And that's not how most relationships are in our life, but that's how God is. And as you live with that, it's just kind of soaking into you. And then you have the fact that the Son of God took flesh became a human being, and you see how the steadfastness of God manifested in him as a human, because in the days of his flesh, what do you see with Jesus? He manifests this this just awesome willingness to endure what actually, when you really start looking into it, they're unthinkable sufferings, unimaginable sufferings, and he is willing to endure those for the joy that was set before him. He's on this mission from the Father, and the Father's plan is that through Jesus and his life on earth, this great Son of God is going to bring many sons to glory. He's going to bring a world of humans to be with the Father as his children, rescue them out of darkness, and bring them back from being enemies of God. And and just the joy of that mission set before Jesus, he endures suffering after suffering all the way to the, the hell of the cross. He is steadfast, as the Son of God in the flesh. And what does all that have to do with you and me? Well, you know that we all now, as the body of Christ, we share that mission, don't we? We share that mission of Jesus now in the world. You are children of God. You are his sons and daughters. You've been bought by the blood of Jesus. And God has filled you with the Holy Spirit of, his, of your elder brother, Jesus, the, 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 the Messiah. And God has sent you to the ends of the earth. You know, we happen to be the Long Island people. But he has sent you to the ends of the earth to make known that the kingdom of God is here. And the terms of the kingdom are peace. God is seeking peace with his enemies through the finished work of Jesus. And this is the good life in this kingdom. And we're, we're just making that known in our lives. We're on that mission of God to, 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 let, to let the world know the kingdom is here and to, to work to see people brought into that kingdom. And as we share in Jesus' mission to fulfill the Father's plan, to bring many sons to glory, and we have joy in our hearts, we have joy set before us like he did, the Bible tells us you and I will, will share Jesus' sufferings. There is is no exception. You're with Jesus, there will be suffering. Now, like our Lord, some of these sufferings will just be what we could call common sufferings. They're not necessarily unique to Christians. They're just things that all human beings experience. The illnesses, the injuries, the pain... The disasters, natural disasters, decay, eventually death. You know, there are preachers that will tell you Christians get a pass with all of this. They don't. You will experience frustrated plans like all people do. You'll experience dashed hopes like all people do. You will experience injustices. You'll experience broken relationships. Time and chance happen to them all, including the people of God. There are no exceptions. Time and chance happen to Jesus, too. You will share these common sufferings. And you also share sufferings that are uniquely Christian, because you will have a fight every day with something called sin like Jesus. You'll have to resist temptation. That's tiring. That's hard. It brings pain. It brings suffering. You will experience the cross of loving people the way Jesus loves people. You know, w- when you are willing to, to, to follow Jesus and love people the way Jesus loves people, you're going to find yourself dying, bearing the cross to love like Jesus. That is suffering. Sometimes you'll find the Father is disciplining you, and that brings a certain pain, even though it's out of love from him. And Jesus said, they hated me, the world hated me, it'll hate you. So this is just like, you know, this is what what we signed up for. And we are not looking for suffering. We're not masochists as God's people. We're not going out, you know, trying to find ways to suffer. Life will bring its own things, and Jesus will, you know, give you sufferings. and, And we should relieve suffering where possible. And if we see each other suffering, or we ourselves are suffering, do what you can to relieve it. But serious Christians are expecting to suffer. I've said many times to you, I'm kind of stunned at how many Christians get really kind of bent out of shape with God when he brings suffering into their lives. And you just, after a while, you want to say, I don't know where you, like, learned the Jesus way, but to expect to follow Jesus and not suffer is infantile. And it's unrealistic, and for people to say that that's possible, you can somehow follow Jesus and not suffer, is heartless. Because you're setting people up to have their hopes just utterly crushed and to become disgruntled and bitter at God we are going to suffer and grown-up Christians are expecting this yeah I'm with Jesus I'm, g- I'm kind of getting up every day thinking yeah this is gonna be there's gonna be some hard things it's okay because I'm with Jesus and so Peter says you're gonna have to add and I'm gonna have to add to my faith my confidence that God loves me and that Jesus has 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 won eternal life for me add to that faith steadfastness and to encourage us let me just take a moment and just consider with you kind of the quiet glory of steadfastness, of endurance. First of all, steadfastness testifies that God is worth it. Endurance of, in suffering testifies God is worth it. Is God worth suffering for? Well, endurance, just hanging in there, testifies, amen, yes, he is. God is worth suffering for. And I'm gonna testify to that by just enduring, by just being steadfast. You know, we live in an age of exhausting spectacle. Everything needs to be a spectacle. And I think Christians, if we're not careful, can kind of get this idea that when you're gonna go out in this world and you're gonna have an effective witness for Jesus, like you're gonna testify to the world of how great God is and how great Jesus is, that that's gonna mean you need to go out and do something really heroic. Something that just gets great, it just ends up being great clickbait. Something just really catches the atten- attention in the midst of all the spectacle. Or that we need to always be seeking like these big visible wins. You know that Christianity is just obviously triumphing in the world. That's how we testify. You know the only problem with that kind of thing is that it just it just really doesn't line up with the life of Jesus. How did Jesus testify God is worth it? Through suffering all the way to a cross. And The the philosopher Joseph Pieper says something very interesting about courage in connection with this. I want to testify to the world, God is worth it. Maybe that just means steadfastness. Because he says the symbolic figure for courage, the symbolic figure for courage is not the imposing hero and conqueror, but the martyr. And the martyr is recognized as a martyr only after the fact. The moment of his ultimate testimony, the word martyr means witness, and the moment of the martyr's ultimate witness that God is worth it, sees him defeated, ridiculed, abandoned, and above all, silenced. For that reason, the ancient sages declared that the decisive element in courage is endurance, not attack. You know, it's easy today in our world to want to get out there and, you know, attack things for Jesus, you know, win big victories for Jesus. Maybe the biggest testimony that we need right now is to learn as God's people how to just have that steadfastness that bears witness God is worth it. But steadfastness also testifies that God is working. It testifies that God is worth it, but being endurance also testifies that God is working, beloved. Because when I want an answer from God and none is forthcoming, you guys have times like this in your life, like I want answers and God's not giving me answers. I want solutions, and God's not given me solutions. I want relief, and God hasn't granted that to me yet. Brothers and sisters, in that very state of affairs, before the answers, before the solutions, before the relief, God is working. Do you believe that? Before the help comes, in the cross, before the resurrection, God is working. And how do we testify to that? Steadfastness endurance steadfastness testifies god is working here the military has a a friend reminded me recently that military has a great phrase that describes this and it is crude but you know it's military so you can complain to me in an email later the military phrase is this embrace the suck embrace it because when you're face down in the mud in training camp and you're just in agony you haven't ever breathed this hard in your entire life or you're out on some, you know, some combat zone and there's, you're, in, you're, you're in mortal danger every moment. You haven't eaten in days, haven't probably slept in weeks. You're, you're just getting all, this is misery. This is like not how humans were made to live at all. And the military idea is embrace the pain, which means to say in your inner self as, as, as someone under those conditions, if you're gonna be a good soldier in those conditions, you gotta kind of stop fighting the pain. I shouldn't have to deal with this. I shouldn't have to be here. This isn't right. I don't like this. Somebody get me out of here. You're a worthless soldier, if that's how you think. You're kind of just raging against the pain. I don't want to suffer anymore. I don't want to be here anymore. Flailing to try to change something that is just on you. And the military idea is, you know what? Just sit with the pain. Just sit with it. Be with it. When you're grieving, just be with it. You're lonely, just be with it. You've been betrayed, just be with it. You're tired, be with it. Just be with it. Don't like flail and rage. Why me? Just just be with it. And we have to learn to say to ourselves, my father has ordained this. My father has ordained this for me. And in the great wisdom of the philosopher Hyman Roth, this is the business we have chosen. Yes, yes. Beloved, this is the business we've chosen. You're following Jesus. You want a comfortable life? Just check out of Christianity. It'll it'll settle stuff down. You want to follow Jesus? This is the business we have chosen. And so God is working in the pain. God is working in the mess. And we just have to stop fantasizing about that other life I imagined God giving me and start turning my attention to my Father's presence and purposes here in the trial. James says, count it all joy when you fall into all kinds of trials because you know this, your Father... It's testing and refining your faith and it will produce steadfastness in you. Endurance testifies God is worth it. It testifies God is working. And there's a third thing, third little glory about steadfastness. Steadfastness bears the weight of others' weakness. Steadfastness bears the weight of others' weakness. You know, when when I'm wobbly in the race, and I I get wobbly sometimes. Hebrews, I love the Hebrews description of this. The writer of Hebrews talks about hands drooping. You, you You ever like this in your life? And weak knees. And this is me. Sometimes this is me in the race. I'm running like this. And i got to tell you, when I get like that in the race, and I do, I don't want some kid who thinks he's the flash coming alongside me. God is <coughs> <Not as> good. <coughs> All the time. I'm like, get away from me. I want the old grizzled geezer who's been at this race for a long time. That steadfast dude with a lot of dents in his helmet. And I want him to come alongside me with my drooping hands and my weak knees. And I want him to say to me, as an endurance runner, I know it's hard, Ben. I know you want to quit. But I can see the finish line. So you just lean on me for a minute, and we'll get there. That's the person I want around me when I'm wobbly in the race. That's steadfastness. It not only testifies God is worth it, not only testifies God is working, it is a way of bearing the weakness of other people. We need in the church more pillar people. I know a lot of people who fill pews. You couldn't lean on these people to save your life, and if you did, you'd find it very quickly. They won't, they won't, they won't help because they, they, I don't, steadfastness, people that have been through the fire, and you have no idea how God is turning you into a pillar person, the kind of person that people in their weakness and pain and suffering can lean on you. God is turning you into that kind of person, fitting you to strengthen your brethren by putting you through the paces of endurance. These are the quiet glories of steadfastness. Now, it's already clear that steadfastness, though, for Jesus' people, this is not just raw endurance. It isn't just suffering for the sake of suffering, right? We're not masochists. It is steadfastness. It is endurance toward something, for something. There's a purpose in the steadfastness. It's on a quest. And so Peter says we also add to our steadfastness God-likeness. God-likeness. That's why It's going after being like God. That's why we're steadfast in pursuit of that. And now I just want to talk more briefly about the adventure of God-likeness. So, you know, the glory of steadfastness, just becoming a, a person of endurance, but it's in order to go after this thing called godliness or god likeness. Let's just think about this for a minute. If I had to define the term, add to your steadfastness godliness, if I had to define that little word godliness, would pr- I could perhaps define it this way, it's a little clumsy. Go- a godly life is a life in which God sees himself. Godliness is when God sees himself in you. Wh- when his character and his activity are recognizable in you and it pleases him. And uh, that, if you think about it, goes all the way back to the very beginning, right? Because God said, let us make man what? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, that's interesting because image is royal language. We are images of the king. Likeness is family language. It's sonship language. Sons are like the father. We are made, Peter Gentry's does some wonderful work on this. I can send you stuff if you're interested. God made us as sons to rule in his likeness as his image. He made us, another way of thinking about it, God made us in family communion, in order to exercise royal dominion in the world that's what we were made for to rule in fellowship with our father king and now since jesus with our brother king that's what that's literally what human beings are for to rule in the world to be royal to be royalty you know, to have regal tasks in the world but in fellowship with the father king and i and i in thinking about God-likeness, I, you know, I, think I, I don't think I have a greater pastoral passion in whatever short years God gives me than to, to somehow encourage and, and, and show each of you all the time, God is your father king. And your whole life, like if there's one thing I would like for all of us to just get soaked down into our imagination, God is your father king, and your whole life, all of it in its totality, is a micro kingdom of his macro kingdom that that's what i just long that we would see from the bible that your entire life everything in it everything about it it is a realm where god's kingly plan to restore all things in christ as the bible describes god is playing out that plan in your little life in the micro kingdom that is you in your little life god is restoring fellowship between god and man that's part of the kingdom he's restoring peace and justice with other people that's part of the kingdom He's restoring stewardship over the world. That's part of his kingdom. The kingdom is being restored in your micro-kingdom because that's what God is doing in the macro-kingdom. Like, that's the, that's the thing we're a part of. That as God's blood-bought children, whom he loves more than we can possibly love ourselves, our hearts are his throne, and our works, then, everything we're doing every day, that is a theater of God's reign. That is a theater where God, as he rules in our hearts, he is showing off through the works of our hands and our speech and just our presence in the world. God is showing off his own goodness, his own generosity, his mercy, his truth, his wisdom, his strength, his skill. That is God likeness. That is godliness. And I think we need to just kind of lean into that maybe in the 21st century especially over against a couple other really awful models of Christianity. One of them is the, the therapeutic model of Christianity, that, that God is just your heavenly therapist. And God's great function in your life is to make you feel better and help you with your issues. That, that is a whole entire like, brand of Christianity that sells that, the therapeutic model of Christianity. Do you know, br- brothers and sisters, what really heals the soul? Look, y'all got issues, I got issues, we got issues. Everyone needs a therapist, they say. You know what really heals the soul? It is to know that my father king loves me more than I love me until I'm so sure of that that his will becomes mine. That'll straighten out your issues. I probably told you the story before. Nastya Lukin, I think she was 16-year-old when she won the all-around gold medal at the Olympics in Beijing in in women's gymnastics in 2008. I will never forget hearing an interview with her she's like 16. 16 16-year-old girls are not always the most cooperative with their father's as some of you know, and she was 16, and her father was her coach. Now, imagine that. That's a a trip, and she says something very interesting in this interview. Beautiful girl. She said, my father's goals are my goals. That is the Christian life. My father loves me more than I love me. My father wants to get me a gold medal, and he knows how to get me there, so his goals are my goals. That's Christianity. My father king he knows exactly what needs to happen in this world and in my life, and so I am confident in that, and so his goals are my goals. He's not just my therapist, and until you get his will as something your heart hungers for, you know, there's a lot of ways in which your issues are going to carry on, but there's also another model of Christianity that's just utterly deficient. That is kind of a spiritualized model, and, you know, we've, many of us have grown up in this that, you know, Christianity is just, it's really just this. Have your devotions, build character, obey the rules, witness, and go to heaven. That's pretty much it. That's Christianity. Everything else is going to burn. And so there's no vision in that kind of Christianity. For God ruling in the public stuff, like work, recreation, relations to the natural world, you know, tools and technologies, social institutions, social structures and systems. And so in this spiritualized Christianity, Jesus is the king of hearts, but he's not in any profound way the king over the shape of our actual lives together in the world. And I just, I want so much for us to get away from those deficient models and, and live God like lives. Godliness means exercising dominion and communion right where you live. That's what it's about. Let me give you two ways and I'm done. Two ways to do that God likeness, exercising dominion and communion right where I live. Two things quickly. Number one, can I encourage you guys? This means treating creation. First of all, c- treating creation as my father's creation. God like people see creation as God's creation, their father's creation. God sees his creation. God enjoys his creation. He enjoys his creatures because they're his creatures, because they're his handiwork. And God, his loving kindness is over all his works, the Bible tells us. And God likeness not only gives attention just to how wonderfully God has made things. There's a kind of slowing down and just kind of tuning out distractions and just giving attention to the fact, wow, the work of God. But God-likeness doesn't just give attention to how wonderfully God has made things, because God does. It delights in the fact that God made these things for his children. Like godly dominion, we say the word dominion, people get sort of like spooked because it just sounds like this dominating attitude. Godly dominion starts with the very grateful acknowledgement that everything in the world is a gift. You guys who have, have little children, this is why it's so important that you teach your children to notice and to verbally acknowledge the blessings God has given them. And to take care of those blessings. Because kids who just always use and consume and expect that have to after they throw it out to get the next thing and it's like, come on, where is it? I deserve this. I don't shouldn't have to clean up, shouldn't have to pick up, shouldn't have to, you know, be a steward, should I shouldn't have to wait, shouldn't have to be without. There's just kind of this entitlement thing. There is nothing more contrary to God likeness than entitlement. Starve it out of your kids. And teach them to rest in love and generosity and be thankful, be thankful. Treat our crea- cre- treating creation as our Father's creation. He loves it. It's his gift, seeing it that way. That's part of Godlikeness. And the other way, more actively perhaps, is growing and guarding what my Father entrusts to me. Y'all have a realm God has entrusted to you. Growing and guarding what my Father entrusts to me. God has given you things to cultivate. He's given you resources. He's given you opportunities. He's given you skills. He's given you relationships. These are given to you. And God wants you to cultivate these things and grow these things and build these things because he wants you to display, thro- as you, as you kind of take what God has given to you and make more of it, you're displaying the goodness of the God who made all of this. You're, you're showing how great the God is who made this and gave it to me. And you're kind of offering it up in a way by developing it before his face and before a watching world. And you're doing that not just for yourself, but to bless other people in his name, taking everything God has given to me, making more of it to just show how great he is and good he is, and to to bless other people in his name. And as I'm doing that, you know, with whatever these things are that God has entrusted to me, I have to guard what I am cultivating against influences that want to defile and distort and destroy this realm that God has given to me. And so, as I'm growing and guarding before the Lord, whatever my hand finds to do, the Bible says, do it in your strength. Whatever it is you're cultivating, do it with the the zeal and the joy, but also the watchfulness of your Father King himself. Add to your faith steadfastness, and to steadfastness, God likeness. Last thing here's something for the coming week that will help you with this. I may as well meddle now that I'm done preaching. Here's a thought for developing godlikeness this week. Every single time you touch your phone between now and next Sunday, ask yourself this question What am I building right now? What am I growing right now? What am I actually cultivating right now? What am I developing? What am I tending? Right now as I reach for my phone And if you cannot answer that question If you don't know what you're building, what you're growing, what you're cultivating What you're tending by reaching for that phone If there's no clear purpose in reaching for that phone Then it's not a tool you need Don't touch it Just don't touch it And here's a second question Before you reach for your phone Related to the guarding side Just ask yourself And, 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 and you know See we want Jesus over here and my phone over here Don't we but we need to ask ourselves another question when we reach for our phone. Just just a thing to practice this week, being godlike. Ask yourself, what defilement, what corrupting influence, what stupidity, what wastefulness, what distraction from good things is slithering toward me right now as I reach for this phone? Get a serpent sticker and put it on your phone. If you, I'd mandate this for everyone under 20. Get a serpent sticker and put it on your phone. So you just stop and think for one hot second before you pick up your phone about what might be slithering toward you as you pick it up. That's godlikeness. My life is his realm. My father king rules here. I am to exercise dominion and communion with him. All right, next week we get to the capstone of it all, brotherly affection and love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Peter's words and the way they've been working in our hearts, and we pray, Lord, that you'll continue to help us in faith as we rest in your love for us to work out not just, Lord, endurance, but the adventure of becoming more like you, ruling in your name over the things you've given to us and doing that with a watchful eye for the things that can defile. Bless us, Lord, and help us to help one another even as we come to that next week. In Jesus we pray.